I am Robert M. Price, the Bible geek. To me, the word geek suggests an obsessed hobbyist, and that would be true in my case. On the one hand, I am utterly fascinated with the Bible. On the other, I do not revere the Bible as divinely inspired and authoritative. I used to, but perhaps ironically, it was avid study of the Bible that eventually convinced me it was not the Word of God. And the loss of religious faith in the Bible made it both more interesting and more understandable. I love the Bible as the classicist loves the Iliad and the Odyssey. In my view, there is nothing more pious than understanding the text. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, let's say we try to understand it together. Uh, gonna get into the questions in a moment, but first I'd like to once again remind you of the soon upcoming debut online of Heretics Anonymous, a discussion group where we carefully pick representatives of different viewpoints who happen to be friends of ours, etc., uh, already, and uh, we uh, debate big issues, ethical, philosophical, religious, and so on. And we uh, taped the first one, and it's a little bit long, but, you know, you can uh, uh, stop listening anytime you want. Uh, the others will be about an hour in length, I think. But it's, uh, it's really fun to be a part of, and I think you'll enjoy uh, listening to it. And I hope you will, and I'll give you more information once we get the website up and the YouTube thing all arranged, which won't be long. Okay, uh, also good news on the book front. Uh, September, September 1st, uh, Judaizing Jesus will be out, and then uh, also uh, they're getting real close to printing up uh, the anthology John Loftus and I edited uh, called uh, the Varieties of Jesus' Mythicism, Did He Even Exist? A bunch of essays from every conceivable mythicist viewpoint, and there are probably more of those than you would expect. And I think it's going to be a great book. And there, there are others of mine in the, uh, the takeoff pattern. Okay, uh, now before we listen to just one more uh, delay, before we get into uh, questions, I must read you a pamphlet that I somehow picked up many years ago uh, that uh, is just really uh, a, a great statement about the doctrine of the atonement. Whether theologians would say that, I, I don't know, but this is written by a fundamentalist Christian. And it's called The Whipping. It wasn't my fault, Dad. We got in a fight, and that kid called me a liar, and then he called my mother a bad name. Bill's father closed the bedroom door and began to take off his belt. Bill had a bad habit. He used bad words and sometimes would even swear. Bill's mother had talked to him about it, but this morning, when the fight developed, Bill began to swear, and his father called him in the house. Uh, Bill, we've told you over and over that it is a sin to take God's name in vain. You broke one of the Ten Commandments. Do you know that commandment? Uh, yes, replied Bill. Mother made me memorize it. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Do you know what that means, will not hold guiltless? I guess it means God will punish those who swear, answered Bill. Do you know that someone was already punished for the swearing you did today, asked Dad. Uh, who did? Jesus did, son. When the Son of God hung on the cross of Calvary, he was dying there because you swore this morning. When the nails were driven into his hands, it was because you swore. When God left him all alone in the darkness of Calvary, it was because of your swearing. He was punished because you swore. Uh, th then, if Jesus was punished because I swore, why will God punish me too? 
God won't punish you, replied Bill's father, if you're willing to admit that you're a sinner and accept Jesus' punishment as your punishment. If you trust him as your savior, the one who took your place when the swearing was paid for, if you'll ask Jesus to live in your heart, then you won't be punished by God. But why should Jesus do that for me? asked Bill. Because he loved you, son. But, Bill, your mother and I said you must be punished if you swore again. Well, what are you going to do, Dad? Here, take my belt, Bill. Don't look so surprised. I want you to whip me. Bill's father took off his shirt and kneeled by the bed. But, but your back is bare, stammered Bill. The belt would hurt. You didn't do anything wrong, Dad. I can't hit you. You must be punished for swearing, Bill, and as you hit me, I want you to realize that you hurt Jesus more, more than you're hurting me. Raise the belt. I, I can't, Dad. Uh, please, I'll never swear again. Please. You must be punished, son, and I'm going to bear the punishment something like Jesus bore your punishment on the cross. Go ahead, Bill. The belt came down with a crack, whoosh, and a red welt appeared. Again. Again, the belt came down, whoosh, harder, whoosh, again, whoosh, uh, please, Dad, again, whoosh, another red mark appeared on his back. I can't hurt you any more, Dad. I see what you've been trying to show me, how Jesus suffered for me on the cross, even for my swearing. I didn't know he loved me so, but I love him now, and I love you too, Dad. Yes, I did not add a word to that. This was published uh, by the uh, Faith, Prayer, and Tract League of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and uh, if you uh, want to get copies of this to distribute to your unsaved friends, this is Silent Evangelist number 67. 20 cents per dozen, $1.25 per 100. Sample package, assorted tracts, $1. Yeah, well, <sighs> make of that what you will. I uh, just thought your theological education would be woefully incomplete uh, without you being um, conversant with the whipping. And now you are. Ain't it great? Okay. Okay, this is from Zach White. Do we know why Jesus declared woes upon the unrepentant cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum in Matthew 11 and Luke uh, 10? Some commentaries seem to suggest Chorazin and Bethsaida were trading cities and therefore had wealth. It looks like Bethsaida was rebuilt by Herod Philip and may have had association with him. Capernaum seems to be a major setting for Jesus' ministry. The condemnation of these cities seems out of the blue. What would have been the reason for these sayings to be included in the Gospels? Yeah, uh, this is of some importance to apologists. And, and one of my old professors, Gordon Fee, said, now here is, I've heard it elsewhere since, that uh, here is evidence of Jesus doing miracles. Uh, granted, none are recounted, but uh, what is it that Jesus says after the woes are delivered? He says, if the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, you'd still see them today. Uh, but uh, you don't, uh, and uh, you won't be seen either. So he's predicting corporate judgment. In fact, this sounds an awful lot to me like uh, the warnings of the angel Messiah uh, in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation 
where he's uh, handing out the doom oracles to various unrepentant churches and all that. And in fact, I think that's what this was. I, I think that this is a prophecy from the risen Christ judging cities that uh, did not repent at the preaching of uh, a historical Jesus or uh, of the uh, the wandering brethren, the charismatic itinerants, whatever you want to call them, the early Christian missionaries. What miracles did they do or did Jesus have in mind? Well, you know, in the charter, the, the mission charge, he tells them to uh, heal the sick and raise the dead. Now, I don't know if you think that ever happened. I, I tend not to. Uh, but uh, that was, uh, at least they, they ministered to the sick in some way. It said they, to anoint them with oil. That was some sort of supposed medicine. But nonetheless, it has to do with the rejection of, of Christian preaching. And that's exactly what we find in Matthew's unique parable of the sheep and the goats. Uh, right? He divides the nations uh, not individuals, at least it doesn't specify that. He he divides the sheep from the goats, the sheep being uh, those nations who accepted the gospel preaching, the goats, those who didn't. Notice the corporate character of this, just like in the uh, the doom oracle you mentioned in, in, from Q in, uh, in Matthew and Luke. And uh, so this seems to reflect that era of Christian preaching where those who didn't get on the bandwagon have uh, terrors to look forward to. Um, why are they in the Gospels? Well, I think for the same reason that you have, um, what are they called uh, in the Quran, the... Um, Oh, maybe I'll think of it later. Who cares, though? Uh, there are a number of places where it warns the supposedly the contemporaries of Muhammad not to repeat the faith, uh, the faith, the error, the fate of uh, various cities that were destroyed in recent memory, or at least in Arabic tradition, like uh, the people of Ad. Uh, A.D., and uh, that uh, they uh, scoffed at the prophets sent to them, Hud and Saleh and other uh, pre-Muhammad uh, prophets uh, of some kind of monotheism, and uh, they were wiped off the map. Irem, the city of pillars, uh, that uh, it, it was supposed to be uh, destroyed for its its wickedness and pride and, and all that. And these, these things are mentioned to say, you don't want this happening to you. And there's one way to prevent it. Repent, uh, believe in, uh, in Allah and the day of judgment. And so uh, I think that's what this is there for. Like, uh, you don't want to end, like preachers would quote this and say, well, this is what happened to Kharadzin and the others. Say, you don't want to repeat it, do you? So warnings. Yeah. Let's uh, see. Um, yeah, we've uh, dealt with that. I have another question, Zach. It says that arises from the recent Myth Vision video with Mark Goodacre and Dennis MacDonald. In the video, they debate the existence of the lost gospel cue and mentioned in passing a disagreement about a passage that I wish they would have elaborated further on. Uh, they would have elaborated on further. Uh, as a cue skeptic, Goodacre brought up the more primitive, uh, blessed are you who are poor in the Beatitudes as merely an example of Luke's theological point of view, as Jesus already declares good news for the poor out of the scroll in Isaiah in Luke 4. Goodacre implies that Luke could have uh, simply been copying and editing Matthew, Matthew at poor in spirit, and uh, maybe Luke wanted to concretize it more and talk about the economically poor who were assumed to be pious anyway. Um, so I don't know if it makes a whole lot of difference in the long run, but there is a difference and you got to try to explain it. So, you know, Goodacre says, yeah, this sounds like Luke's agenda. Uh, he may have cut out the in spirit. 
Okay, uh, McDonald seemed to disagree, suggesting the more primitive version would be a better candidate for the original Q saying. Uh, in other words, that uh, Luke is just repeating this from Q, copying it right out of his copy of Q. But for Matthew, uh, nah, he, he didn't want to make quite that point. He's talking about spiritual humility and receptivity, like uh, Schleiermacher would say eons later, the feeling of absolute dependence upon God, uh, or like the, the person, the, the speaker in the hymn, uh, fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord, come and quench this longing of my soul. That, that's poor in spirit, those who, it, it's kind of equivalent to, uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness, right? Whereas Luke just has, blessed are those who are hungry now. Well, you got the same thing exactly. Did Luke trim it down to make it more about economics? Uh, or did Matthew add to such a saying and make it more spiritual? That's a toughie to settle. Uh, Okay, uh, it, uh, back to Zach, um, it seems obvious, considering the rest of Luke's gospel, that he has a more intentionally class-conscious point of view. But I'm interested in the debate over Matthew and Luke's parallels being connected by a common source or by copying or editing from one from the other. The cynic-like sayings material of Matthew and Luke do seem to form a very different current of theology than the more death and resurrection-centered point of view that dominates the Old Testament. Um, that's one place where I have to admit I don't quite follow you, Zach. Uh, you mean the rest of the New Testament? Uh, even the rest of the Gospels? Well, as... Um, as um, uh, Adolf Harnack, whose picture, photo of him, is looking down at me right now from above my row of books on the Gospel of John, uh, he, he said that, uh, that it, it, Jesus, he, he had a pretty optimistic view about what in the Gospels really went back to Jesus, though not everything. And he said, what about Jesus preaching stuff like uh, the prodigal son? The, the clear teaching of that is it's never too late to repent. God will meet you more than halfway. Don't write yourself off. Uh, are we, Harnack asked, supposed to think that Jesus was thinking in the back of his mind, of course, this will be moot in a couple of weeks after I perform my atoning death on the cross, because then you'll have to be baptized and believe in it and so on. No, of course not. That's ridiculous, Harnack said. It seems pretty clear that somebody has superimposed this uh, atonement theology onto a simpler message of repentance. And uh, that's, uh, I think it's... Uh, Harnack has a real good point. I, I wouldn't apply it quite the same way, but yeah, he, he's got to be basically right. And, uh, and so it, may, it might be that the, uh, the Q1 material, as scholars denominate it, um, is much earlier material and pre-Christological uh, in the proper sense. Uh, and uh, there's a real good section on this in uh, Burton Mack's book, The Lost Gospel, uh, uh, something like The Book of Q and Christian Origins or something like that, where he shows that if you take out the stuff that um, seems Christological and you know, Christian theological, in Q, what you have left falls neatly, without reordering it, into seven topical groups of these cynic-like sayings. And so that, he says, and many others do, is Q1. Well, that's uh, that's got to be factored into the Q uh, business also. And Dennis MacDonald also says that, that uh, the matter is complicated by the fact that we have, uh, we can compare simpler and more complex versions of various sayings between Matthew and Luke, which suggests there's more than one source going on here, more than one missing one. 
uh, and uh, he he gets into this. It's I'm sort of new to it. Uh, it's a little more complex than I can follow. But uh, he says there, Papias is implying there were two Gospels of Matthew. Uh, and there was the Gospel of Papias, namely the exposition of the oracles of our Lord, and that uh, you can trace a more complex relationship, and that the more primitive, no matter which current Gospel you find it in, is a survival from one of these early and now lost sources. It's really fascinating. I have not yet uh, dipped into his 700-plus page book on, on this called Two Shipwrecked Gospels, but what I have read in summary elsewhere makes it a pretty uh, intriguing hypothesis. Well, okay, a question from Nick furiously trying on an eye patch. I'm sure all you Marvel fans know what we're talking about there. Greetings, O thrice greatest geek. May your days last in happiness. Occasionally, I share with a geek and fellow listeners some truly dumbfounding parallels between Christian literature and other literary works of antiquity. It seems the dumbfounding lightning has struck again. Somebody must have said Shazam. Uh, there is a well-known parallel between the Gospel of Mark and a story in the Odyssey. I believe Dennis R. MacDonald was the first modern scholar to point it out, but I may be wrong. Regardless, one can't go wrong by giving a shout-out to Dr. MacDonald and his amazing scholarship. Amen to that. Uh, the main character, uh, Jesus, or Odysseus, doesn't want to have his true identity known, but nevertheless it gets discovered by a woman attending to him. In the Odyssey, that woman is Odysseus's old wet nurse named uh, Eurycleia. In, the, uh, in uh, the Gospel of Mark, the woman's name is never mentioned, but Jesus says, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, uh, uh, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of in memorial of her. Mark 14.9 This may be a hint to Eurycleia, meaning far-flung glory. That's the meaning of the name. Uh, so far, nothing groundbreaking, but how does Eurycleia's story end? For the benefit of the fellow listeners, here's a brief summary of the Odyssey. Odysseus is fought in the siege of Troy on the side of the Greeks and survived the war. On his way back home after the war, he has had multiple adventures and misadventures, which took years to complete. So back home on the island of Ithaca, he is presumed dead, and his house is full of suitors seeking to marry his widow and usurp his kingship of Ithaca. Uh, Odysseus's wife, Penelope, uh, believes that uh, Odysseus is coming back and does her best to rebut the, the, the suitors, but her power is limited by law that says the island must have a king. Ah, uh, the good old misogyny. Odysseus returns home alone, worn out, having lost his ship and companions, dressed like a beggar, so no one but Eurycleia recognizes him. In the end, Odysseus's identity is revealed and proven by heroic feats of which Odysseus, feats of which, uh, Odysseus alone is capable. The suitors attack him, and he slays them all. After the suitors are defeated, Odysseus's son, Telemachus, does a bit of house-cleaning. He executes by hanging a number of housemaids identified by Eurycleia who were friendly or perhaps got frisky with the suitors. Uh, what number would that be, you ask? Why, it's twelve. Now recall that the twelve apostles as portrayed in Mark are totally clueless about Jesus' identity and purpose and therefore should not be expected to attain salvation. They are compromised by their adherence to suitors, the temple cult, who seek to usurp the divine power. Note, too, that while battling the suitors, can we say principalities and powers? Uh, uh, see, it falls to the man, Odysseus, 
house cleaning, that is dealing with the mere mortals. Uh, just a minute, while battling the suitors, it falls to Odysseus, the man, the house cleaning, that is dealing with the mere mortals, it's carried out by the son of the man, Telemachus, who lived in the house all along but couldn't do anything until his father showed up and gave him the power and motivation to act. Oh, and one more thing, the only apostle whose manner of death is described by evangelists, although not by Mark, Judas, died by hanging. I guess this is how traitors were supposed to die in those days. Uh, let's see. Once again, I stand dumbfounded. Would Mark's contemporary readers understand his work this way? Should we? Any comments from the geek would be greatly appreciated. Um, I don't really know. That, that strikes me as a little bit of a stretch, it, it, partly. I do think that um, that the uh, oh the parable of the wicked tenants is based on this episode in the Odyssey, uh, and uh, the uh, it's not an exact match either. But the son of man thing that uh, that bothers me a little bit. Uh, that that seems a, a bit. Uh, Vague. Uh, you could be right, though. Uh, and I uh, don't know, of course, what the ancients would have thought. I don't think anybody is on record in you know, among the church fathers as pointing this out. Um, I mean, they were pretty keen on indicating parallels between pagan mythology and the Gospels, as odd as it may seem, because uh, they wanted to show the uh, the scoffers among the pagans, you know, I don't know why this should sound odd or funny or implausible to you. You believe the same thing about your uh, saviors and gods, don't you? you know, what's what's the problem? And um, But I don't think that, that uh, this is the case. I know Stoics um, often brought up both Hercules and Odysseus uh, as as examples of the righteous Stoic man, uh, and uh, sometimes highlighting the, his cleverness, and Jacob was used that way. I don't know, I, to tell you the truth, I forget whether they invoked parallels from Greek and Roman mythology, but it, it was the, the equivalent sort of a thing. I'm not really sure. It's well... Uh, well worth pointing out. I, I maybe I can ask uh, Dennis McDonald about this particular thing, and um, but I do think you got the the Odyssey popping up in in the Gospels, uh, the Garrison demoniac being a prime example, uh, being based on. Uh, I mean that being based on both the. Uh, uh, the Cyclops and uh, Circe changing uh, Odysseus's legionnaires uh, in into pigs, um, but I uh, I don't know. I keep uh, chewing on it. That does sound pretty interesting. Okay, uh, another one from uh, Nick. Um, in a recent episode of the Human Bible, you mentioned an interpretation of the Transfiguration story as a way of reconciling the Gospels with the two Messiah apocalyptic, apocalypticism. For the benefit of fellow listeners, the two Messiah apocalypticism is a set of teachings where the Messiah would be preceded by the return of the prophet Elijah, who would anoint the Messiah. So in the Transfiguration story, Jesus appears briefly to lend his credentials. I'm sorry, Elijah appears briefly to lend his credentials to Jesus' status as the Messiah. Here's an interesting side story, though. If I understand correctly, Justin Martyr, an early Christian apologist who died around 165 CE during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, uh, never quoted any of the canonical Gospels. Perhaps he didn't have an occasion? 
Well, in the dialogue with Trypho, he is confronted with the matter of Elijah's non-return. Trypho, Justin's opponent in the debate, says, uh, but Christ, if he has indeed been born and exists anywhere, is unknown and does not even know himself and has no power until Elijah come to, to anoint him and make him manifest to all. And you, having accepted a groundless report, invent a Christ for yourselves and for his sake are inconsiderately perishing. Um, had Justin read the Gospels, he would refer to the Transfiguration story. Yet his reply seems to be something along the lines of, that's what the Holy Spirit tells me. At that point, Trypho's companions start laughing and making noise, and Justin asks Trypho to relocate the debate and make sure his supporters remain quiet or leave, so no satisfaction. <laughs> So no satisfactory answer to Trypho's accusation ever emerges. Um, can we understand this to mean that the canonical Gospels were largely unknown in the mid-2nd century, even to big-name apologists such as Justin? Uh, I think so, though he does mention the memoirs of the Apostles. Uh, who knows what they are? Could be the Gospels. But all of his gospel-like quotations do not match uh, the, uh, any of our gospels. They, they seem to be hybrid conflations of some passages. It's really puzzling. Anyway, but Marcion was writing around the same time, and he had a proto-Luke of some kind. And Justin knew enough of Marcion to denounce him. Uh, so, what are we to make of Justin's seeming ignorance of the Gospels? Did he know that there was no concept of non-Jewish Christian scripture in the times of Justin? And Marcion was the first to propose it? Marcion, of course, proposed his New Testament as a replacement rather than a complement for the Old Testament. Can the geek pontificate on this, please? Yes, let me get my uh, mitre on here. Um, I uh, sort of think he did not have a gospel. He may not have had a, um, well, he didn't seem to have ours. I don't know why he would have gone to the trouble to harmonize the, the, the sayings, um, except that I believe we hear that Tatian, who may, is usually credited with having compiled the Diatessaron, uh, a harmony of all four gospels, crammed into one. Um, he, he, must, he obviously had them, but uh, it makes me wonder if uh, Justin had already a, a set of harmonized sayings, but uh, I, uh, I don't really know. It seems to me that uh, the, uh, like he hated Marcion so much, that probably made him reluctant to, uh, to quote Paul, he never mentions Paul. And uh, that's, uh, I think that's been shown pretty convincingly that uh, until Tertullian and Irenaeus toward the end of the second century decided to start quoting Paul um, opportunistically and from doctored versions of the epistles, uh, that uh, they, they'd rather just avoid it as heresy. And that may be the case here, and it might be that if the Gospels did already exist, and I'm not sure they did in, in Justin's time, that uh, he might have felt suspicious about, uh, about them too. Walter Schmidthal says that the Gospels have a virtually apocryphal status throughout the second century. And they start quoting them late, and it seems to me that uh, at least Polycarp of Smyrna, who put together the, the uh, canon of 27 in a particular edition, um, which was 200 years later, endorsed as the only edition to use by Athanasius, uh, Polycarp uh, fiddled with the texts of the Gospels as well. And uh, so I... I but that's, uh, that was a bit earlier than Justin, but who knows how long it took for it to get to him. 
maybe these memoirs of the apostles were just like uh, like when Papias says that um, Matthew recorded the logoi, the words uh, of of the Lord, and everyone translated them into Greek as best he could. Uh, it really is a mess. We need more evidence. But uh, I suspect he either didn't have them available or was suspicious about him, pretty much the same as with the Pauline epistles, though somebody might have gotten to him with a sanitized and harmonized um, list of sayings. Uh, that's a, uh, I think I have a book by, jeez, uh, who is it? Um, not Helmut Kester, maybe, about the, the sayings of Jesus and Justin Martyr. I don't believe I've ever gotten around to reading it. If I have, I've forgotten. I'll have to check that out again. Yeah. Okay. Mm. All right, this is from Jonathan Cox. Being raised as a fundamentalist Christian, I was taught that astrology was bunk at best and divination at worst, therefore an instant ticket to God's adverse judgment. Since modern science also agrees that astrology is bunk, I never gave it any heed. After listening to your podcast, I've come to realize that astrology played a huge role in many ancient religions going all the way back to Sumer. Can you recommend any books on this subject that use a historical, uh, historical scholarly approach and its use in ancient religions? Uh, this, uh, there is a book, I think, by a guy named Bullinger called The Gospel in the Stars. And this guy is like a Bible-believing, old-time, uh, classical fundamentalist who said, you know, you, you're, you're making a big mistake, brethren, to dismiss astrology. I, I've not read the book, but it, it is like a major one, good or bad, on the topic. But the one I really love uh, is uh, uh, Bruce J. Molina's book. Uh, the uh, I could have this wrong. I think it's the genre and message of the book of Revelation. Might be the message and genre. But, uh, of course, that's only about the book of Revelation, but it is absolutely astonishing how so much of the book of Revelation is based on astrology. Uh, and there's there's no quibbling with Molina's scholarship on this. He was thoroughly con conversant with all the ancient works uh, on astrology and uh, shows how there was an accepted almost glossary of, of symbols uh, that would appear uh, and, in such discourse. And there they are, bing, 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 throughout Revelation. I think you're really going to love that book. And Molina is M-A-L-I-N-A, -A, Bruce J. Molina. Look him up on Amazon. I'm sure you'll find him fast. Uh, or you could also, I mean, and you could also look up uh, by topic, astrology and the Bible. That might uh, be worth looking at. Like It's like you don't have to believe in astrology uh, or numerology to recognize that the ancients did believe in this stuff. Uh, and so uh, if there are hints of it, or more than hints in the Bible, you're under no uh, compulsion to uh, deny it and uh, say, oh, no, that's a lot of bunk that's being read in. Uh, sometimes I grant uh, it's pretty speculative, uh, but uh, or, or another one, uh, a great book on uh, astrology and mythology in the Old Testament is... Um, um, oh, what's this? Ignatz, which I think is uh, I G N A Z, um, Goldseer, G O L D Z I H E R. Uh, if you have trouble with that because I've misspelled it, you might maybe there is a Z. Uh, no, no, I think that's right, yeah. Okay, uh, his book is uh, Mythology Among the Hebrews, 
and what he does uh, is to show how so many of the patriarchs and the judges and so on must originally have been uh, planets, stars, and constellations, uh, which the ancient Israelite nomads kept careful track of. Uh, it's mind-blowing, too. I would recommend that very heartily. And there's going to be a chapter in our forthcoming anthology of essays, uh, Varieties of Jesus' Mythicism, which goes into the case for the Gospels being narratized astrology. I forget who wrote it offhand. There's a whole mess of them in there, but you're going to want to read that, I'm quite sure. So, okay, um, this is... Art Cominio from Florida. Uh, he's a long-time faithful Bible geek. Uh, he says, In Holy Fable 3, chapter 27, you describe the climate of post-exilic Israel as being characterized by, one, the dehistoricizing of history, and two, a, a, quote, division opening up within Israel between saints and sinners, replacing the long-standing dichotomy, Israel versus the nations. As, as regards history, we have redefined the date of founding uh, for our country from 1776 to 1619, and have abandoned the founding fathers uh, accompanied by mobs tearing down their statues and monuments. We are embracing new founders, quote-unquote, and heroes, in quotes, that nobody uh, ever heard of before. As regards division, we used to be united in believing the USA is the leader of the free world, but now we are badly divided along mostly internal issues. I see a perfect parallel here with your description of post-exilic Israel. We've changed from a country where the government is answerable to the people to a system where the uh, elite uh, in government stand high above the people and place the people's interests second to a set of ideals foreign to a majority of the people. I'm not suggesting that the U.S. is on the verge of embracing an apocalyptic viewpoint, but uh, that post-exilic Israel is a perfect example of a situation that has occurred numerous times in history, that of a split between an aristocratic few and the more numerous people they despise. By the way, you might want to read Paul Hansen's book, The Dawn of Apocalyptic, which I refer to and which goes into this very thing. I'm not suggesting this will lead to a religious revival in the USA. To the contrary, I see the USA going the way of other Western nations in increasing secularization and the lessening of religion as a cultural factor in daily life. Although I am not a believer myself, I think that religion can be an important restraint on political tyranny. I'm not sanguine about our future as a secular society ruled by elites. Can you talk me out of my pessimism? Uh, well, Art, uh, I share pretty much what you're, you're uh, saying. It does seem to me that, uh, that the, the government has been seized by people who are such internationalists uh, and, and Marxist-leaning and that their minions in the streets are pretty much like the Red Guard in Maoist China. I mean, the parallel there is incredibly exact. Uh, and if they prevail, I think uh, we're in a lot of trouble economically, uh, militarily, and, and so on. Though um, people seem to be recognizing that uh, this is happening and, and are beginning to mobilize in whatever ways they can by uh, voting in new school boards and things that uh, and the, the Senate and uh, the congressional elections will tell the tale partly um, in 22. So I think there is a chance of escaping this, but uh, who knows? 
I don't want to get political because I know I don't like it uh, when shows of various kinds that are not about that start getting into it, but since you asked, yeah, and I, I think also that that you're right about the decline in religion, though that's not quite to be confused with the decline in, in church attendance, which is certainly serious enough to uh, worry those in charge of organized religion, and it's only going to get worse, in my opinion. Not that it's any skin off of my bulbous nose, um, but I, I think they're uh, already seeing, um, like, I uh, can't think of the guy's name, there's a book that I did a review of called The Coming Evangelical Recession, where this guy's an evangelical pastor and an accredited reporter, and he shows how that uh, any optimism about the future of the evangelical movement is uh, sorely misplaced. And his uh, suggestions for uh, cutting uh, their losses are not all that optimistic either. But it, what I regret about that, oh, there's a bunch of things that indicate that they're, they're going downhill. What I regret is that uh, our society no longer has a sacred canopy of laws, morals, customs, uh, mores and values, as all traditional societies always had, and their mythology slash religion was always the cornerstone of that, because the founders uh, set in motion the idea that these laws came from God via Moses or Hammurabi or Apollo, whoever you want to pick, uh, and that therefore they must not be uh, disobeyed. Uh, they can be uh, oh, massaged a bit and, and even updated. You see that happening even within the Bible explicitly. Uh, but that there is that uh, common uh, canopy. Uh, Peter Berger uh, talks about this in his great book, The Sacred Canopy. And uh, that has um, been shattered pretty much because of um, the pluralism of America, something I rejoice in, I, even as a fundamentalist Christian, I, I was already thinking, oh man, I just love the, the diversity of, uh, uh, of all the nations and languages and costuming and so on. Uh, I, I've always loved that. I've never been a nativist or whatever. Uh, and uh, but the 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 downside of it is that uh, these people from other cultures have different religions, and their values, of course, are usually pretty much the same as the Judeo-Christian Victorian values we have have been working off of, but uh, not all the time. And the and there are big differences, and it has undermined. The solidarity. Now, you can have uh, people living together, embracing their divisions, uh, happy to learn about the differences. Like the one thing that really bothers me in today's climate is this cultural appropriation thing. Why don't people see that if you're not Hispanic, but your group has a taco night, you're showing how much you appreciate this other culture? And so on. What can white people not listen to jazz? Uh, I mean, it's absurd. I, these all these things are not appropriations, but affirmations uh, of the glories of all of these cultures that we are very fortunate to have cheek by jowl in America. Well, we used to be able to have a kind of a sacred canopy because of uh, civil religion, as it's called. Uh, the the um, like okay we might have different scriptures but as as Americans we had a common scripture in the Declaration of Independence the Constitution and the Bill of Rights we could all treat that as scripture we we'd be careful with it we would try not to do unconstitutional stuff uh, and uh, and so. That was our common scripture. We had common holy days, especially July 4th, but Memorial Day, Veterans Day, and so on. Uh, we had uh, a group uh, not of 
church fathers, but of uh, the founding fathers, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John and Samuel Adams, etc., etc. And, uh, oh, um, so on and so forth. But now that has, has been ripped to shreds. Uh, and it seems like we don't have a, a common vision or loyalty anymore. I don't even think that's up for dispute. Now, that might have been the natural course of evolution from pluralism, but I don't think so. I don't think it had to happen that way, and it's not a wholesome thing, uh, in, in my opinion. So uh, I, uh, I can't offer a whole lot of... Uh, optimism on that, but I don't think the battle is completely lost, but I have a hunch our people and government may be too gutless to do anything about it, and uh, I hope not, but we'll see. I mean, the American Revolution happened with only a third of the colonists behind it, so who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll just see. And, uh, okay... Mm, thank you, Art. Uh, let's see. Uh, let me let me enlarge the the uh, font on this. I'm becoming increasingly unable to read this stuff. Uh, the old cataracts and such. Okay, this is from uh, Jason Heasy. Says. As a person who thinks truth can be found anywhere, I have interest in other religions. I've read the Mahabharata and went back through the Bhagavad Gita separately. Uh, you know, because the, the Bhagavad Gita is, is now part of the Mahabharata, but it was originally a separate scripture. Okay. Would the uh, Gita be something you would be interested in speaking on? To me, it just seems like Krishna says to Arjuna that he is Kshatriya caste, so you have to perform your castly duties and uh, fight your uncle, because it's about a dynastic war. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that is correct. Uh, it's, it's very striking. Uh, um, the dialogue between the god Krishna who is incarnate as an avatar. I'm not clear on whether Arjuna, the commander of the One Force, realizes this yet, or if it's only revealed to him in this dialogue. I've read it, uh, even assigned it in a great devotional classics course once. Uh, but uh, he is, his charioteer is, is Krishna, and uh, He's touring the, the camp on the night before the battle is to ensue. And the people he's about to fight are his own kinsmen. Uh, and uh, he, he says to Arjuna, you know, the more I think about this, the less convinced I am we're doing the right thing. I mean, <laughs> this is, these are our countrymen and our kinsmen. I don't want to go slaughter a whole mess of them. Uh, and uh, it, it just seems pointless. Now, you would expect Krishna to say, I'm glad you realize that. We pursue the way of peace. But no, he, he doesn't say that. He says, what's the matter with you, buddy? You're a Kshatriya. You're a member of the, the penultimate caste, the second highest one, the warriors. It is your dharma, uh, your caste duty to fight and kill. Uh, you can't slack off on that. And besides, what the heck? The people that die are just going to be reincarnated anyway. Just like changing a suit of clothes. Uh, so so get to it. And then there's the, this incredible scene where uh, he, uh, he asks uh, Krishna to show him his true divine form. It's very much like the transfiguration. And uh, he, he's just... Uh, flabbergasted. His hair stands on end. He describes Krishna in great detail, and it is awe-inspiring. Uh, and uh, everybody ought to read it. It's great. And in fact, it, it ultimately reminds me a lot of the Gospel of John, 
where Jesus is really like a, a God walking around on the earth and makes all of these revelatory statements. Uh, I am the way. Uh, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the true vine. You are the branches. Uh, I am the gate, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, or uh, one of my favorites uh, in chapter 11. Uh, Master, if you'd have been here, my brother Lazarus uh, wouldn't have died. You could have done something about that, right? Uh, and he says, look, uh, your brother will rise again. Says, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the story. Uh, the last day when everybody else does, that's cold comfort. He says, no, no, I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Uh, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Whoa, man, that is some great stuff. Yeah, I don't care if you're a God-hating atheist or whatever. It's just, uh, just perfect. Uh, though I will admit that Nikos Kazantzakis even improves on it in The Last Temptation of Christ. But yeah, this is a lot like the Bhagavad Gita and uh, inform this revelation discourse. And of course, there are Gnostic uh, versions too. Uh, just, just great stuff. Uh, let's see. This is from the Mushroom, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's probably a pseudonym, but who knows? Uh, I've been wondering in the many, many times I've heard apologists quote the creed as evidence of Christianity being true, why people have not said that the same creed, if correct, proves the gospel's wrong. Uh, so this must mean there is an apologetic against it, and will the geek in his wisdom enlighten me as to what it is? This creed proves the gospel's wrong. Oh yeah, here we go. Uh, the creed mentions that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then to Five Hundred, then to James. Uh, if the Gospels have Cephas as a disciple and the Creed assumes that the Twelve are the disciples, then why are they in different groups? Well, uh, Mushy, my uh, best judgment is to go along with Harnack again. Uh, he said that, uh, you ever notice the oddity that you seem to have two parallel statements there? He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve he appeared to James and all the apostles. Uh, aren't the twelve the apostles? I mean, you, you could say that apostle was used more widely, and, and that's probably true, but the apostles that early? You're not talking about uh, people added to their ranks. What Harnack said was, the only way it makes sense is if this uh, so-called creed, and you're right, they, they tend to call it that, uh, the only way that would make sense is if it's a compilation of originally different formulae. Uh, there were different stereotyped resurrection appearance claims probably used uh, by different factions to, you know, how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, uh, am, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? Well, presumably, that's, he means uh, I got the credential because I had a resurrection appearance vouchsafed to me. Uh, and that would probably be the key to these individual statements. Uh, and uh, so that... Uh, and especially at the end, like last of all, uh, he appeared to me, and so on. Well, the, the issue is he's an apostle, right? So um, Harnack said that the apostles and the twelve are the same, are supposed to be the same people, but the name of their leader is different because different groups of Jewish Christians who all venerated the 12 because they sort of stood for the 12 tribes, 
uh, had differences of opinion on who should be the figurehead. Should it be um, James? Of course, it doesn't say whether they mean uh, James the Just or James of Alpheus or James of Zebedee. I think loads of guys were named James, right? Uh, but uh, some said he's the one, or it might have something to do with the fact that uh, James replaced Cephas at some point, like in the book of Acts, when uh, when an angel narrowly rescues Peter from getting beheaded, uh, he takes it on the lamb uh, and says, tell James goodbye for me. And then for the rest of the book, James is the head of the group. So maybe it has something to do with that. Uh, but uh, Harnack, correctly in my humble opinion, thought that someone long after these rivalries were moot uh, decided to preserve all of them by connecting them in this list. Uh, kind of like the way uh, the uh, they, th they used to think the Apostles' Creed was put together. That the Apostles got together and decided we need a creed so each uh, disciple or apostle framed one of the statements. Uh, of course, that's a lot of hokum, but, but I think Harnack was probably right that this is long after they had ironed out the, uh, the differences between at least the Jewish Christian groups. Now, what would the 500 brethren have to do with that? Well, in my article, Apocryphal Apparitions, uh, which uh, appears again in my book, um, The Amazing Colossal Apostle, uh, I say that uh, this must have been an interpolation into the list because uh, no such appearance uh, occurs in any gospel. And it is just impossible to imagine that if there were such a tradition, it would not be in every single gospel. Uh, whereas it does appear in some manuscripts of the Gospel of Nicodemus from the 4th century, uh, right? And so it seems to me somebody borrowed it from that, and at least our manuscripts of it are from there, and plugged it in. Now, we don't have copies of 1 Corinthians that uh, that are without this, but we don't have any of them early enough uh, that, that uh, would settle the story by comparison. Uh, the interpolations uh, are already there, uh, but this old tradition or story that somehow made it into the Gospel of Nicodemus had earlier made it into First uh, Corinthians. So that one is it kind of breaks the pattern of the apostolic credential uh, use of these or nature of these originally separate assertions. Uh, now the contradiction to the uh, the creed, um, let's see, do you mean that uh, it doesn't have, uh, have them in the right order, that he appeared first to Cephas, because he doesn't in uh, the gospel narratives? But uh, it's you could reasonably say that people couldn't easily keep straight when the first appearance was and to whom. Uh, that's kind of uh, ooh, uh, possibly forgivable, but it, it, in fact, depending on how you read the Emmaus story, it's possible that what is intended is that Simon Peter was one of those two disciples, the one who was unnamed. Uh, and uh, in that, and when when they say, uh, when they get there and tell their story, it now has the disciples hearing them out and saying, "The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon." I have a hunch that was originally what the the uh, the Emmaus disciples said to them, but somebody wanted Peter to get the first one, and so flipped that around slightly. But let's just be sure we've got this right. The, uh, raised on the third day, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Yeah, uh, and uh, so somebody for uh, decided. Uh, 
that uh, it would be better if um, Peter was listed as the first and uh, and juggled it uh, for that reason. Uh, but somebody else decided, no, uh, let's let's have him for the narrative's sake. Let's have him appear to to um, Cleopas and who? Uh, well, Cleopas could be a slight tinkering with Cephas, right? Or it might have mentioned the name of the other one, and it's missing now, strangely, because uh, that uh, it had originally been Cephas as one of the two. It's a mess, I admit, but there are plausible ways of uh, understanding it. Um, okay, I want to uh, stop it there for today before my voice gives out. And uh, we'll take this up again on uh, on uh, the next exciting episode of The Bible Geek. Thanks for uh, listening and uh, take heed to the warning in The Whipping. Uh, you don't want to uh, wind up in hell where the demons are really going to let loose with those barbed lashes. Who <laughs> can I get a witness? Oh,